0: You're an Asian place. Go on, girl, don't take me for no girl. I ain't gonna quit pretty mama while the weather goes. Around your back... Futurists are looking at the 21st century. And all myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality.
1: Computers are taking
0: over now. By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic people, too. It's time once again to step into the future. If you ever were the devil's boss without any harness, better burn your man. I hear you, mama. Hey, hey.
2: BMX. Alright, lately it has come to my attention that people think I'm cool. Totally. I received this compliment, like, with fair regularity on social media, and while I, I am grateful that some people believe this about me, it also astonishes me every single time because I am the least cool person I know. Seriously, I was bullied all throughout my childhood for being a dork. I never fit in with anyone. Up until high school, my only friends were all the outcast kids who were bullied for being dorks and geeks and losers, like, we were the goonies, but without the cool adventure where we find pirate treasure in the end. In high school, I made a wider group of friends and they were almost all wonderful people, but we were decidedly not the kids anyone else looked up to, you know? Like, we were all kind of flying under the radar. And while not being noticed was a lot better than being bullied, we were also definitely not what anyone would call cool. So given my early history as one of the least cool people on the planet, why now, in my 40s, in middle age, have people begun to perceive me as cool? This is a mystery that has haunted me lately. I cannot figure this out. It torments me. I, it keeps me awake at night. And I don't even know why I'm so puzzled and weirded out by the fact that some folks think I'm cool now. Except that it's just a radically different reality from what I've known my entire life. Like, am I unconsciously projecting an entirely different Libby out into the universe? A Libby that doesn't exist inside my own self? And if so, why? And how? Because I'm not trying to! This is not intentional. It's just a thing that's happening. I'm not going to fight it because, frankly, if people think I'm cool then maybe they'll be more drawn to my books and almost the only thing I care about in this world is my books. But it's not anything that I'm trying to do, it's just something that's building around me. And to be honest, it, it weirds me out. More than a little. Because it feels like it's something that's entirely beyond my control. This is Future Saint of a New Era. I'm Libby Grant. Alright, let's break this down. Let's really get into what cool even means. What is it made of?
0: How does a person get to be popular with lots of people and have a few close friends, too? Let's watch and see what makes people like one person and
2: not another. I went a-googling for answers. I typed, what makes a person cool into the search bar, and in case you have never googled this phrase before, I'm pretty sure that googling what makes a person cool is the very antithesis of coolness. But I found a pretty useful article in Bustle by Carolyn Stieber. It was originally published in March of 2018. Uh, And in this article, the author interviewed a whole bunch of psychologists and like other mental health professionals on the topic of coolness. This team put their heads together and came up with 15 characteristics that tend to make other people perceive an individual as cool. But it mostly boiled down to confidence and authenticity, just unapologetically being who you truly are. And I will say that I do have both of those traits, confidence and authenticity, for better or worse. I've often referred to my own confidence as pathological, and I'm only halfway joking when I say that because I know I'm not exceptional as a writer or as anything else. I'm good! Once in a while, my writing even attains the heights of very good, but it's not like I'm the world's greatest, come on. I do have certain goals, which one might fairly describe as lofty, but if I ever achieve those goals, I'm not going to get there by telling myself I can't. So instead, I tell myself I can, and just the act of believing in myself goes a pretty long way towards reaching those goals. I mean, most writers tell themselves, I can't, or I need the approval of these outside voices to know that I'm worthy, or The only way I can achieve my dreams is if other people allow me to achieve them. And because that's the narrative they've created for themselves, that is the reality they experience. The only thing exceptional about me is that I just tell myself a different story from what most writers or most other kinds of artists tell themselves. Because I insist that I can and I will, my reality is different. And sure, the path I've taken to get where I am is like drastically different from the path most writers envision or even want. But here I am, making a good living writing fiction, despite the fact that no one knows who the hell I am, despite the fact that I've never had co-op placement in bookstores, or really any bookstore distribution to speak of, I've never had advance buzz for a single one of my books, I've never had trade reviews, never had critical praise, I didn't even get to be a so-called debut author. I hacked this career, this life, this existence out of the sheer monolithic face of the publishing industry with my own two hands, without even the support of an agent. I do have an agent now, and she's awesome, but, but I only ended up working with her because I'd already built myself into a two-time bestseller on my own. Through my own ingenuity, my own originality, with no support except one fortuitous promotion my publisher did on one of my books, I did not achieve this By telling myself, I can't, or I need outside help to do this. I did it by telling myself, I can, I will, and if no one else believes in me, then fuck it, I don't need them anyway. All I've ever needed is myself. Maybe that's what people are picking up on when they say I'm cool. The fact that I have built the kind of career that many people dream about having, despite the fact that the deck has been consistently, persistently... And without fail, stacked against my ass. And I tell other writers and other kinds of artists all the time that the most important thing you can do to achieve your goals and turn this into a career is tell yourself you can. Stop telling yourself you can't. Or that you need the approval of agents and publishers to get there. Or if you can't do it the quote-unquote right way, then you won't do it at all. I tell other writers this because it is absolutely true, and most people, honest to God, do not believe me. They think I'm being hyperbolic, maybe, or, like, metaphorical in some way. They think I'm giving some kind of warm, fuzzy pep talk about believing in yourself. I'm not. I mean this quite literally. I believe, I live my life under the practice that words literally make reality. And this isn't some kind of woo either, at least not on its surface. This principle works very simply, very logically, very rationally. And here's how it works. Whatever you tell yourself is what you will come to believe. Whatever you believe will shape your actions. And the actions you take will create the reality you experience. And most people don't believe me when I tell them this is how I got to where I am. Like, it's, I get it, you know, I get why they would be hesitant to believe it, because it seems too simple, too pat, it's like too much of a cliché. But the people who have believed me, who've taken my advice on personal narrative, have seen ridiculously transformative results. And I'm not selling you anything, I'm not profiting in any way from putting this idea out into the world. I just know how much it fucking sucks to be at the bottom of the heap with the weight of your beloved dream crushing down on you. I know how much it hurts to feel like you're never going to get there. And I want other writers and other artists to be happy and succeed and get your art out into the world. Help it find its audience. Live your dreams. Make the most of the one life you've got while you're still alive. The best and most direct and most useful way I can think of to help other artists is to tell you the truth that reality is shaped by words. So use your words with care. And really, you'd think other writers in particular would be more open to this idea. Like, we work with words. Words are our thing, our jam, our medium. And yet it's usually other writers who are the most staunchly resistant to this philosophy. Like, more than any other kind of artist. Go figure. I don't know what to say about that. Writers are funny creatures. Anyway, back back to the topic at hand. I suppose what people mean when they say I'm cool is that I'm confident and I'm authentic. Uh, to a fault. To my own peril, honestly. And that's fair enough. But it still surprises me whenever I hear anybody say this or, you know, see them say it on social media because I've known Libby for 42 years and y'all, she is not that cool. Allow me to present a by-no-means-comprehensive list of cool things about me and uncool things about me. Brace yourselves. Okay, yes, I write books for a living. That's pretty cool. He really has it. However, I ended up with this career because I wouldn't pay attention to anything but books from a very young age. I ended up in, you know, the gifted program at my school. I'm sure probably some other people listening to this were in the same program. But I was in the gifted program purely because I was reading at a college level by the first grade, so all the adults in my life thought I was super smart. I am not super smart. Not at all. I could read like crazy, but I had zero interest in any other subject, so I just refused to do any of it. Literally all I would do for the entirety of school was read and write. And then when I got to high school, I was really into drama and band, so all I would do was like drama class and play music. That was all. Consequently, my grades were absolute shit in everything except for language arts, which made me, objectively, the dumbest kid in smart kid school. Alright, because of my previously referenced pathological confidence, I do have crazy swagger. That is true. A real cool Jonah. Unfortunately, I am also not an attractive woman. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but our culture has no room for women who do not conform to certain very narrow and entirely arbitrary beauty standards. And if you live your life flipping the bird at all those standards of femininity, everyone gets really mad at you if you're also confident. So more times than I can count, people have gone out of their way, like left their friends and crossed a room just to walk up to me and tell me to my face that I'm ugly. That does not happen to cool people. Uh, On the upside of that, I don't care, and I even think it's kind of funny when people do it because I think it reveals a lot about their own insecurities, so that's kind of cool. Man, he's positively frantic! Downside, though, uh, I'm not kidding when I say I'm not an attractive woman. Here's maybe the most uncool thing of all about me. I can count on one finger the number of times I've been asked on a date. And the person who asked me on that date was Paul, who's now my husband. But at the time when he asked me, we'd already been seeing each other for weeks, and he only asked me to go on a date with him because I told him I'd never been asked on a date in my entire life. Also, when this happened, I was 30 years old. Yeah, asked on a date for the first time at age 30, and even then it was a pity date from my already boyfriend. Oh my god, it was so uncool. I did formerly work as a zookeeper. A lot of people think that's cool. <laughs> Oh, really cool. Unfortunately, zookeeping is 90% dealing with poop and 10% trying to help animals cope with the severe psychological distress of being held in captivity. That's not cool. Uh it is true that I once smoked a joint in Jeff Ross's hot tub. Jeepers. However, my senior year of high school, I had to participate in a project for our Modern Living class, wherein all the students were randomly given signs to wear around their necks, and each sign described like one of the various steps involved in correctly using a condom. The sign I had to wear said, LOSE ERECTION. Do you think anyone ever allowed me to forget this? It was still mentioned at my 20 year high school reunion. So, you know, given all this, which, as I said, is a short and not comprehensive list, perhaps you can understand why I'm so baffled by this recent spate of people declaring I'm cool on social media. They see my confidence, they see my swagger, they see the one or two rad stories I have to tell. I see 42 years of being Libby Grant. And it's a very different view from here folks it's a very different view despite my absolute confoundment over this alleged coolness i'm grateful it's utterly baffling in my case but it is really fun to realize after a lifetime of being the biggest gawkiest most awkward dork in the room that just by remaining authentic to my awkward dorky self i've somehow circled back around to a place where Some people find something worth admiring in my personality. For someone who has been so consistently not admired for so long, it's kind of nice that in the end I managed to make some sort of emotional connection with the people who are like me, you know? It's really gratifying and I guess, you know, uh, heartwarming to realize that people who have had similar experiences to mine who feel like they're on the outside looking in perceive me as an example of someone who made it. Who has a cool life. Right or wrong, like, I can disagree with them from my perspective, knowing myself and my embarrassing stupid history as well as I have for 42 years. But from some other people's perspective, everything I've got going on here is kinda rad. that, you know, that makes me feel nice. So if you're one of the people out there who thinks I'm cool, then thank you. I appreciate the compliment. It has been a long time in coming. If you're one of the many people who thinks I'm extremely uncool, I hope you know that you are correct, and uh, I am in full agreement with you.
0: What about Ginny? Does that make her really popular? Do the boys and girls like her? Is she welcome to join this group?
2: One of, one of the least cool things about me, for sure, is that uh, I have uh, a worldview and a relationship to reality, I guess you can say, which can fairly be described as the dorkiest shit
0: you don't know how to make people like you, and you find yourself holding a grudge against them. You're standing on the outside looking
2: in. I went into it a little bit earlier when I was talking about how words create reality. I, I won't go into too many details, um, just because I think when I talk about this stuff too much and with too much sincerity, it actually counteracts the perception of my coolness and exposes how truly not cool I am, so, so I keep this aspect of myself on a fairly tight leash publicly. I am comfortable with saying that my relationship to reality is different from what most people are used to. One of the subjects I think about a lot, uh, one of the ways I conceptualize reality and my place within it, is the concept of an egregore. What is an egregore? That's that's a great question. (laughs) It's a little tricky to define in a way that makes sense to people who aren't used to seeing reality as something that's malleable and at the same time bigger than what our human senses can perceive. I touched on some of these ideas a little bit in the in the first episode with Ben Leroy. This idea that there is more to our world than what we are capable of either sensing or understanding. There's just more, more reality, more dimension, more out there than human comprehension, than human works. It's all bigger and stranger than we are capable of knowing. And as I mentioned in my conversation with Ben, it's all sentient and alive, or at least that's the way I interact with it, as as everything being sentient and living. That sentience, that aliveness, that individuality of an animistic universe includes ideas. Ideas are living things. They are separate things. They exist apart from human minds, but they need human minds as partners in order to have influence upon the world, in order to take action and perpetuate themselves. Now, some ideas originate from who knows where? Elsewhere. <laughs> it's beyond. And they visit creators of various kinds and they tinker with us a little bit until they find the right host, and then they settle in, and the host creates a Thing, a vessel, you know, a book, a painting, a, a piece of music, a dance, whatever, um, a thing that can carry the idea outward and seed it into more human minds. And from there, the idea can go on influencing the world because you know humans do things, right? We take action in an objective reality as much as reality can ever be said to be objective. If you've ever read the book Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, you're already kind of familiar with this concept. She believes the same thing and kind of goes into it in Big Magic. Sometimes ideas originate from human minds. And if we construct and nurture those ideas in the right ways, we can propel them outside of ourselves with enough momentum and fuel that they keep going. They find a strength and an identity that's bigger than the person who birthed the idea. The original creator no longer has any control over the idea, or even any influence over it. The idea becomes an entity unto itself, and it moves across the culture however it will, finding new hosts in which to regenerate itself, in which to pick up new aspects that, like genetic mutations in biological organisms, will fit or unfit the idea for survival. So that's an egregore, more or less. It's an entity made from thought, from idea, that has grown beyond the size and capability of the mind that created it. It's an entity that has learned how to navigate human culture for its own benefit. And it moves through our world under its own power, independent of human will
1: and I scheduled this thing at 9 a.m. I didn't realize that's when, on your end,
2: because it's noon here. That's fine. Like, I I don't know what's wrong with my brain, but I wake up by, like, 5.30, even if I don't set an alarm. So this is, like, late for me. <laughs> it's okay.
1: That's awesome. So we're, we're all just on different time schedules, because, meanwhile, I was thinking noon. That's... That's kind of when I start my thinking for the day.
2: This is M. M. Kerrigan, and I I apologize for the terrible audio quality in this segment. We had a bad connection, and we had to work with what the universe was willing to give us. I hope you'll stick it out through the crummy audio, because I had such a great conversation with M. They're not only a writer, they're also the editor-in-chief of one of the most popular magazines of the contemporary literary fiction scene. You won't believe what that magazine is about, but we're about to tell ya.
1: And I scheduled this thing at 9 a.m. I didn't realize that's on, on your end, because it's noon here.
2: That's fine. Like I I don't know what's wrong with my brain, but I wake up by like 5.30, even if I don't set an alarm, so <laughs> this is like late for me. <laughs> it's okay.
1: <laughs> that's awesome. So we're, we're all just on different time schedules, because meanwhile I was thinking noon. That's, that's kind of when I start my thinking for the day. I've cracked open a can of Mountain Dew. I'm ready to chit-chat. I don't get there before noon, so. I'm impressed that you're you're ready to go at nine. Awesome.
2: Uh, don't don't be impressed. I, it's just, I've been like this my whole life. Uh, it caused me a lot of problems when I was younger, because my friends would always like want to hang out super late, and I was like, mm, it's 9pm, I'm going to bed, so. No, it's fun. I, I, I admire the funness. So you start your morning with a Mountain
1: Dew. <laughs> no, it's noon now. I, I, I start with coffee. It gets worse from sure there.
0: Mountain Dew gives you that happy, summertime, barefoot feeling all year round. Get the
1: barefoot feeling, drink a
0: little
2: bit of Mountain Dew. Get the barefoot- I first uh, encountered you on the internets because you are the proprietor of a little publication known as Taco Bell Quarterly. Can you tell me something about what the hell Taco Bell Quarterly even is?
1: Yes, Taco Bell Quarterly is a literary magazine that defines the intersection of art and Taco Bell. I love this so much. Thank you. And we publish literary writing, art, poems, prose, anything you want to send over, we'd love to consider it.
2: Why? Like, how, how did this happen? Why did you do this to the world?
1: <laughs> I love that question. Why did I do this to the world? So, so I started it as a joke one morning. I decided to tweet out to a couple hundred followers. I don't I don't know how many followers I had. I'm one of those writers that was sort of like, well, I guess I'll join Lit Twitter now. So I did. And I submitted to a couple literary magazines. It was fun. I kind of really enjoyed clicking hard on people's things and reading their stuff. I, I want to do more. So I said, I'm going to make a Taco Bell literary magazine because that's if I was going to make a literary magazine, that's just what I would have done. And then it
2: became real. Yeah, it became... Really real. Em and I recorded this conversation near the middle of September 2022. And by about mid-October, Taco Bell Quarterly's follower count on Twitter began to creep north of the follower counts of some of the oldest and most venerated establishment lit mags in the entire publishing world. Magazines that have been around for 75 years and more. Magazines that are considered among the most prestigious publishing credits a writer can hope to garner. Magazines that can make a literary writer's career. First, it was Prairie Schooner. Then the Virginia Quarterly. Just a few days later, Taco Bell Quarterly's Twitter account had surpassed the follower numbers of the Southern Review, the Indiana Review, a public space, One Story, and the award-winning Georgia Review. By the end of September, just a few days after M and I recorded this conversation, on only its fifth issue, Taco Bell Quarterly's website, where the magazine is published, surpassed half a million unique user views, making this magazine about the intersection of art and fast food burritos one of the most read publications in the entire literary market. What is an egregore? It's an idea that comes to life and begins to run on its own two feet, under its own power and largely out of the control of the person who originated that idea. Unreal. It became very real. It, it's surprisingly popular. Well, not surprisingly, because you really curate high-quality work in Taco Bell Quarterly. Like, it's, it's good stuff, and also, it all involves Taco Bell somehow.
1: Yes, that's the one guideline that every single piece must have a Taco Bell reference. And it is up to you, the creative writer, whether you want to go maximalist or minimalist with how much Taco Bell you're going to shoehorn into your
2: writing. I love that you provide that wiggle room for for the creators to (laughs) interpret it as they will. What is the best menu item at Taco Bell? The Mexican pizza. Wrong. It's the 7 layer burrito. Which I can't eat anymore because I have to watch my sodium now because I'm old. So um, no more 7 layer burritos for me. I'm really sad about that. I fucking love those things.
1: Well, they also took it off the menu. Oh, when did that happen? They're cruel gods. Um, oh. It was during the menu apocalypse of 2020 when everything went to shit. Oh my god. You know,
2: in the entire world and the Taco Bell menu. It, we truly are in the worst timeline now. I let's let's have a moment of silence for the seven-layer burrito. Rest in peace. Yes. The seven-layer burrito is now lying in state. People are <laughs> lining up for hours and hours to gaze at its corpse.
1: I'll just add in some synergy there with the seven-layer burrito. We're up to seven million, and what we're asking for from Taco Bell—the fund for literature—seven million dollars. Bring back the seven-layer
2: burrito. Oh my God, this is a worthy cause. I think we should get there. You frequently, under your guise of of at tbquarterly on Twitter, which is the Taco Bell account, the Taco Bell quarterly account, uh, you frequently take a piss at the Paris Review, which I am fully in favor of. Um, Can we just talk about how much we fucking hate the Paris Review for a minute? I'd love to. What a piece of elitist shit. (laughs) I hate it. It's so gross.
1: I'm scared. We're gonna piss off the gatekeepers.
2: Oh no. Oh no. I might be gatekept out of the literary world. How's that any fucking different from what's going on in my life for the past 42 years?
1: I mean, it's it simply is true. The gates are there; they exist.
2: Yeah, they do. But something I think is so so nice about being a, a writer or any kind of creative person right now, like any kind of artist right now, is that there are so many more options for just kind of end running around the gates and like building your own audience and going directly to them in one way or another. You know, obviously, in publishing there's the self-publishing aspect, but I know a ton of visual artists who are just like, fuck it, I'm not working with galleries, (laughs) you know? They're just like, they're building their followings on Instagram or whatever. It's pretty awesome to to get to be a creator in this environment. It also definitely has its challenges, too, because, I mean, you can probably only get so far. Like, my big goal in life is to win my Pulitzer, it's going to happen someday, but my God, it's an uphill battle because no one will take me seriously in the literary world.
1: And you have a... I looked up your book before before I started ch- chit-chatting with you, and I was looking at the reviews because I want to tell the story of how you've submitted to the Taco Bell Quarterly, and we've rejected your writing, yes. and you are this accomplished writer. You have this book out. It's got hundreds of reviews, and people say, this book is a hell of a ride. That's what someone said. That is the dream. You're living the dream.
2: Someone is saying your book is a freaking ride. I mean, yeah, I, I'm living the dream. I'm living some people's dream. I'm not living my dream, which is, which is rough. Like That part sucks, because I don't know which book you looked up. I have a lot of books.
1: It was The Prophet's Wife, the, the latest.
2: Oh, yeah, okay. I mean, I'm, I'm living other people's dream, for sure, because I am able to make a living off my writing, which is great. But the grim reality <laughs> of being a professional writer is... The kind of writing that earns you a living isn't necessarily the kind of writing you want to be known for, so that part sucks. That part sucks real bad, because, like, I am doing a lot of writing and paying my bills from it, which I'm grateful for, and also the kind of writing that I want people to know comes from me is just being pretty brutally ignored. Like, The Prophet's Wife should have been a much bigger book than it was, and it well, there's all kinds of reasons why it wasn't. I know them all, I could recount them all in great detail, but because of all those fucking gatekeepers we talked about earlier, I will prudently keep my mouth shut until I have become untouchable, and then I'm gonna spill all the tea. It's all coming out someday, just today is not that day.
1: You know, I think that mood is... I just see it across the landscape, everybody is sort of wanting to say what's on their mind, and they're not sure when they're going to say it, but everyone is in so many fields right now. I feel, I know that we're living in the darkest timeline, but I am I tend to be an optimist, and I try to look for good things and good storylines, and I I really see people rising up in a lot of fields and saying,
2: you're not listening to us, for real, and we're going to start fighting back. I agree with you. I I see that too, and I think it's really encouraging, and really exciting. I, I, it's everywhere in our culture right now, and it's definitely coming through in the arts as well, which is so fucking awesome to see. I have seen so many people start indie literary magazines like your own in, in recent months and years, and it is so cool to see that people are just like, you're not going to listen to our voices? Fine, we're just going to take them directly to the people on our own. And uh, I love that. I love that energy. I love I love that confidence that creators are getting. Yeah. You have uh talked repeatedly on your Taco Bell quarterly Twitter account about a fantasy event which I desperately want to see actually become real. Like really, I want to I want the Baja Blast to be a real thing. Let's I want to make it happen. Can you tell us what what you envision the Baja Blast as being?
1: Yeah. So, there's the most beautiful Taco Bell in the world. And I had honestly never even heard of it until I started getting a lot of submissions about it It, for the literary magazine, but it's in Pacifica in California and it's on the ocean and you can watch surfers while you eat Taco Bell and I've looked up the pictures and it really does look incredible. It looks like a place where I want to live my fantasy life, my best life. So yeah, I want to have the Baja Blast there when we have millions of dollars I have to think about it though, because I also don't want to be—I ex- wouldn't want to be extravagant in throwing parties like the Paris Review.
2: But we do deserve to party once at that Taco Bell. That's awesome, at least once. And seriously, when it happens, I, I love the the words you use to talk about this. You're not saying if, you're not saying maybe someday. You're saying when, and that's how you do it. That's how you make reality happen. You you create it around yourself, and then you let it run wild. And yeah, someday, someday the Baja Blast is going to be a thing. I will be there. I will definitely be stoned, which is for sure the best way to experience Taco Bell. Um, I will have to watch my sodium intake, so I'll be moderate, but (laughs) I will be there. Awesome. We will be there. I'm really excited to
1: tell all the writers, you'll be invited, whoever's out there listening to this, you're cool enough to come to the Baja Blast, the ultimate literary party at the most beautiful
2: Taco Bell in the world. Everybody! Everybody's coming to the fucking party! Everybody! Yes. I, I want to hear... Everybody is coming to the Baja Blast. Yeah, I want to hear what everyone has to say about everything. I, I The internet can be a, a weird, clamoring mess of stupidity. Stupidity. Just like that. I'm leaving that in. A weird, clamoring mess of stupidity. But I also really love how it has kind of democratized. Well, kind of has kind of democratized what voices get heard and and what messages get shared um it's made it more democratic and more of a meritocracy than it was before everybody had the internet if that makes sense there's still a long way to go and like money making algorithms still fuck with a lot of stuff you know uh particularly on apps like tiktok and stuff but um but it's it's kind of beautiful how how if you can be pioneering enough and creative enough you can get out there and find and build your audience and like find the people who connect with your work which is that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast honestly like the publishing industry keeps kicking me in the face I'm like all right fuck you guys fine I'm gonna go find my people elsewhere and then direct them towards my books (laughs) because like if that's what it takes and that's what it takes like you're not gonna put me in bookstores okay I, I will not use bookstores then. Yeah, when the
1: when the when they present you with absurd and impossible and fucked tasks, you just say okay. Yeah. I'll try it. And, and in some ways, we must have sort of absurd, fucked responses. <laughs> yes. Let's make a podcast and become world famous. I, let's make a yes, podcast.
2: Yes. I know a bunch of people who are professional podcasters, and like, it's worked pretty well for them. And I'm not them, so it might not work for me, but like, what do I have to lose by trying? Right. Like, I figure the only good asset I have is my own stupid personality, which for some reason, which I still cannot understand, a lot of people seem to like. So I'm just like, okay, I guess I'll leverage that, because whatever, it's what I've got. It's what
1: I've got to work with. We're we're all trying, and I, I think that's what we can do for each other is be
2: transparent about how we're trying. Yeah. Because the gates are that high. No, I agree with you completely, and that's why when I decided to start a podcast about you know, stuff. There's not even like any subject for this podcast. It's just like shit that goes through my brain. Spew it out into the world because the world needs more of that. But um, when I decided to start this podcast, I knew immediately what I wanted to do was talk to other people who are kind of outsiders in their field, um, in creative fields of some kind. And, And a lot of people who I know, like myself, have had some measure of commercial success, but they still... Are not where they want to be with uh, the work they're doing, um, or they're kind of on like a parallel track to where they want to go. And um, I-, I find those people really interesting to talk to because I think it's an an interesting place to be as a creator, where you're like caught up in the capitalism of it and making the money from it, but also feeling like it's not quite right. <laughs> I don't know.
1: Yeah, no, a lot of what you're saying just it makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I don't think. I think a lot of people are getting to a point in their lives where we're saying, "This isn't where I wanted to be. This isn't how I pictured life was going to be." The pandemic really sped up that process for people too. Oh yeah. Um, you know, I kind of joke that Taco Bell quarterly is a joke that became serious about. It. It's really also just a my midlife crisis, <laughs> taco flavored midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm turning 42 in a couple of weeks. I'm so excited, yay. All right. So I, I, I hope that, um, I, I imagine in my head, someone's going to listen and be like, oh, God, that person's old.
2: Well, we're both old then, because I'm also
1: 42. <laughs> it hit me cuz what when i read people's tweets and they say that they're in their 40s i'm like oh i didn't know they were that old <laughs> and meanwhile i'm older it's not too late you're you're only halfway in everybody's fine it's fine it's 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 not dramatic i'm fine i love being 40 it's never yeah
2: it's never too late till you're dead like for real you just what else are you going to do with a fucking life but make stuff right yeah i'm just been making stuff and having a lot of fun that's awesome that's what you're supposed to do that's what we're all supposed to do make stuff and have fun who, uh, um, what has, like, surprised you about running Taco Bell Quarterly?
1: Every single thing about it. <laughs> I couldn't even name one. I would, it would be like a, a Letterman top 10
2: list. <laughs> How like how many followers do you have now on that? Like how how widely read is is each issue?
1: On the social media account, it's approaching thirty thousand. Shit! And and the and the website just surpassed half a million page views. Are you fucking kidding me, Kerrigan, You're killing it. That's a lot for poetry. That's a ton for poetry. That's like god tier. I, I don't know because the Paris Review doesn't share their numbers, so I. It's hard to tell. Fuck the
2: Paris Review.
1: Like I said, we all need to be transparent.
2: Yeah, the Paris Re- for those who don't know, the Paris Review is this literary establishment. It, it's a it's a magazine that's been around forever, like literally forever. I sent M um like clippings i found when i was doing some research for a novel about van gogh so like back in you know the 1870s or whatever this was where i found references to the paris review it's been around that long and it's just this like extreme gatekeeping like only people who get into the paris review rise to the top of the literary heap like blah 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 it's just like blah. <laughs> it sucks and it's very gatekeepy and recently some article came out about how maybe the cia manipulated it to try to like manipulate European culture into being more favorable toward Americans. I believe that. It seems like something the CIA would do. And it is very, like, they hold a big party every year that, like, the literary elite come to, but you have to pay, like, $10,000 to go to it. Like, it is gross. It's gross.
1: Yeah, and we have a back channel, me and my co-editor, and... We talk about our conspiracy theories and, you know, all of the stuff being connected to the CIA and whatnot. I know what it's like when you read that stuff. You're like, what is going on? It sounds like aliens. I don't believe in it. I'm sure maybe the aliens are real. Like, maybe if they appeared before me, I'd believe it, yeah. So that's what I'm saying is our joke in the back channel is the the aliens are real. They're real. All of it's real. Every every conspiracy you think is probably true. You've seen enough literary world. I think it's real. (laughs) So... (laughs) So whenever we send conspiracy, uh, you know, I send a picture of an alien or whatever, an emoji.
2: (laughs) Sometimes you gotta. So, um, wow, you're getting really wide readership for all these poets and short story writers you're publishing. That's fucking awesome. You're also a paying publication, which is huge. Like, you're an indie literary magazine that's gotten to the point where you're able to pay for acquisitions. People who, who don't know publishing, uh, this is a big deal. <laughs> like, small magazines, even some big magazines, don't really pay. Like, I one time had the Huffington Post offer me $250, and I was like, hmm, I'll pass. It's a big deal to to get your work acquired uh, for money, when, especially when you're writing poetry and, and short pieces, and especially when you're starting out, as is the case for many people who are submitting to indie lit mags. Yes. And um, the fact that you're able to pay is huge. And probably does have something to do with, with the growth of your audience, too. Like, people respect that. Plus, it's weird. It's all Taco Bell stuff. People want to gawk at that. Yeah, it does have that, that gawking aspect that I love. But, yeah,
1: thank you so much to anyone listening, to everyone that's supported it. It's just been incredible what's come in. And I started it... I should tell this story, because we're deep into a podcast, and how many people will really listen, right? Like five. I feel like I'm going to in trouble. So... My parents are divorced, and my mother has passed away, and my dad is uh, not, not really around. I see him every couple years, and every time I do, he hands me a lot of cash, sort of awkwardly. And I, I love you, Dad. Thanks for the cash. But I really don't ever know what to do with it. So I, it, it was sort of like, well, should I, I should either buy weed with this or invest it in a literary magazine. The two options. That's usually kind of what my choices are with the awkward, you know, divorce dad money um so so yeah I just I decided to just battle myself and throw it into this literary magazine and and, and then some of my friends gave me some money and, and and then I could afford to start paying you know buying a couple of
2: pieces and, and growing from there so oh that's so cool do you feel like you've discovered anyone? Like, like have you published somebody who you're like, holy shit, how does nobody know that this writer exists yet?
1: Uh, well, I kind of
2: feel that way about every single writer that
1: we've published, really. And I'm defensive about it. I'm, I'll fight for every single one of them. Yes, all, all these writers should be famous and have books out. And a lot of them do. We've published so many incredible writers. I'm so proud of all of them. So... And 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 taking so many different paths as a writer, uh, that's just something I would like to say too. That there isn't there isn't one way to be a writer. You don't have to go through those elite paths or anything. You don't even have to play this weird game where you're posting for your life on social media. You can just make art and nobody cares and have fun. And you're you're an, you're a writer. You're
2: an artist still, no matter what. Hell yeah yeah. Do you um. I'm going to ask a question that is kind of a tense question sometimes uh, when I ask it of, of creative types. A lot of kind of tense questions. What is the difference between art and not art, in your opinion? Well, I think it's like porn,
1: that's a, I don't know what I'm, I, I'm not smart enough to pull it off the top of my head, whoever I'm attributing this to is, or maybe it's just a cliche, but it, you know, it's like, I know it when I see it,
2: porn, I think that's the same thing as art. Yeah. Have you ever, like, I don't know, how how am I going to phrase this question? Have you ever, like, really asked yourself, like, what does art do? Like, what is its purpose? Why is it here? Why do we do this as humans?
1: I think we just like to connect with other people, and we want other people to think we're cool. So we sort of really start trying to make stuff and show off and get people to pay attention. Yeah. Oh, that
2: makes that I mean, maybe so. That makes sense. At least that's what it's like for me, personally. That's good. you got to know your own motives for this stuff. Have you uh, always wanted to be involved in the arts? Like, were you really artsy as a kid, or what's your deal?
1: Yeah, I'm just one of those people that I always thought I was a writer. Like, ever since I was like five, it, like, and the cliche, you know, oh, I'm in love with words or whatever. I want, you know, you go through that phase when you're like
2: 15 and. I just went through every single phase. That's awesome. Did you write really terrible shitty poetry when you were a teenager? Because I did. Terrible. I'm also not even on top of it all. I'm a terrible fiction writer and terrible poet. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like you can't be. (laughs) I feel like that's not true. I think you're just your own worst critic because maybe like you came up with this incredible idea of Taco Bell Quarterly and you've created this whole like weird uh, environment around it on social media where people are like talking about the Baja Blast and like (laughs) waxing poetic about fucking Taco Bell and like that all came out of your brain. You did that to other people and it like became an idea that is perpetuated through what they write. Like I don't think you're a bad writer. I think you just think you are. That thank you, thank you for the kind words.
1: We, we we should always be uplifting each other too when we put it, when we put ourselves down, because being a writer is hard. Yeah, and um, so just thank you for that. But I do have a clever response too. Um, so so I do think that I'm a nonfiction writer, and I do think I'm a good nonfiction writer. Fair enough. And the fictional part for me, I think that does come across in the, the social media voice that I've been creating. And I'm, it's very much a character, and I'm giving it a plot. And so I'm doing some fiction 101 there with it, and I'm having
2: fun with it. I'm having fun with fiction. So th- there we go. Fiction, it's fun, guys. Do it. Fiction is fun. It feels like that should be a poster in a classroom or something. Like Yeah, that's, that's what would
1: be in my classroom. Yeah. Yeah, I'd scare <laughs> everyone, scare everyone into never becoming a creative writer.
2: Did your parents encourage you to pursue an interest in writing and in arts, or, or were they like, "Eh, you should probably have a real job"? Yeah,
1: it was yes and no. It was you can
2: do whatever you want as long as you get a real job. So I often wonder if that's, um, if that's the difference between the sort of like wild, stupid, perhaps unwarranted confidence people like like myself have about their own uh, creative processes. And people who are more, like, humble and cautious about creativity. I I wonder if it comes from how your family felt about it in childhood. Because my my family, I come from a family of professional artists. They were all painters. But, like, I just grew up with art careers being normal. Like, that was what you did. (laughs) So no one tried to discourage me when I was like, I'm going to be a writer. They're like, well, great. Go be a writer then. And so I've just always been, you know, very gung-ho about it and very, like, I will not accept anything else for my life. Ah!" Yeah, I mean, a lot of people do that. yeah. A lot of people have that you have that sort of approach
1: too. And I think you see that like in like academia, too. And I think everyone's just kind of
2: hitting a wall across all the fields. yeah, that's true. We're, we are very burnt out lately as a society, aren't we? There's a lot of shit we're dealing with. Yeah, it's a cultural burnout for sure what really frustrates me is that there are so many big issues going on in society right now and what I've seen from publishers like in the in the commercial fiction world is that they're all like oh we shouldn't write about that though we don't want to touch that because it's not going to be like no one wants to read about that I'm like bull fucking shit they don't want to read about it I keep telling all my publishers the first person to get a pandemic novel to the market that is, that is emotional and cathartic and allows people to process these feelings is gonna die on top of a giant mountain of money. Like, why are you saying no to this this book I'm writing? And everyone's like, no, 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 no. We don't want to read about the pandemic. I'm like, fuck you guys. Everyone wants to read about the pandemic. <laughs> like, how stupid to to like ignore all these problems in the fiction world and to and to just insist that we have to stick to this narrow band of what's acceptable to write about and publish. It's just insane.
1: I've not heard a single good thing about publishing. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean... Just across the board, this sounds like a terrible entity. What should
2: we do? It can be very frustrating. There are the weird thing is though, like you've got all these great people on the sort of bottom level of it. You've got writers who are trying really hard to make great art, and Mm -hmm. you've got like acquisitions editors and like developmental and copy editors who are trying really hard to make good art. And then right above those people on the pyramid are all these jackasses with ledgers who are like, "That's not gonna make money, so we're not gonna do it." And it is so frustrating for everyone like i don't mean to make it sound like i'm dissing on the editors here because they're just as pissed off about all this and as underpaid as all the writers are
1: <laughs> I've, seen, I've sort of seen those same sentiments on on twitter and such yeah in the many articles i've read it does seem again it's sort of that ground level and i encourage
2: everyone to stay and fight yeah it is this sisyphean task to like get ideas past marketing is is the department that like puts the kibosh on stuff most of the time. And marketing is just persistently like, nobody wants a pandemic novel. It's like, really, have you asked people? Have you actually asked readers what they want to read right now? Because they all are trying to figure out how to process this fucking trauma we've all gone through collectively. And what is art for if not to process trauma? You know, like, that's how I feel about it. Like, it's how we explore the things that we can't say otherwise that we can't bring ourselves to say or can't bring ourselves to confront directly. Yeah. Or at least that's that's what I put into my books anyway. So for me to just consistently have this pandemic writing I'm doing be rejected, I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you idiots? Like there's so much money in this <laughs> Like sorry to be <laughs> sorry to be all crass and talk about money, but like if you guys won't think about it from a humanitarian perspective of like this is what the public needs right now, at least think about it from a money perspective. This is what the public will buy right now. So, uh, yeah, people drive me crazy Anyway, that's something I'm going to be doing with this podcast too Since nobody will buy my pandemic short story collection I'm going to uh, bring it out as a podcast Where people will be forced to listen to my god-awful voice Narrating my own words <laughs> I'm excited to see where you take it Thank you <laughs> I've got some really good pieces written so far. I've got like three short stories in what's going to be probably a seven or eight story collection that's all set during 2020. And I really like it. I think it's some of my best work. Uh, No one will touch it. So I'm like, well, I'm not just going to let it die on my hard drive. I'm going to get it out to an audience. So, you know, if I have to do it audibly... That's how I'll do it. Yeah, cool.
1: Is it is it going to be called Future Sane of a New Era?
2: No, that's just the name of the podcast. It's, uh, I, I don't really know for sure what the final title is going to be. I kind of have a working title right now.
1: I was curious about the podcast title.
2: <laughs> the podcast title, um, okay, so... you. If you can see me, there's Van Gogh back there on my bookshelf, staring outward at me. Uh, This is an audio medium, so for those of you who are listening, uh, behind me (laughs) on my screen right now is my bookshelf. On the bottom of my shelf is a big, huge book uh, of all of Van Gogh's works, and he is looking, he's faced outward, staring at me so I will not forget about him. Because uh, I've been working on a novel about Van Gogh's life for a while. Um, It's another one I'm having a difficult time selling. Who the fuck knows why? One publisher already says she didn't think Van Gogh was a very commercial idea. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? His shit is plastered on every doodad you can buy, but okay! So uh, I've been working on this Van Gogh novel for a long time, and one of the things that really struck me uh, as I've been researching his life and writing about him is that he came along artistically at a time when art was changing very rapidly, in part because of what was going on in Paris at the time. Like, there was just this sort of cultural revolution um, in Europe that was all focused on this, like, young group of, of creatives in, in Paris who were just doing everything differently. They're, like, throwing all the establishment shit out the window, doing everything new, and um, it really... it. it changed uh this it changed the whole era of of western culture not just in the art but like in the way we think in the way we uh, act toward one another the things we prioritize and the things we value and van gogh was doing maybe the most revolutionary work In that milieu, but he didn't get recognized for it until after he died. And then after he died, he was basically canonized as like the greatest artist of all time and like one of the most influential figures in Western culture. Um, So I just thought about that a lot. I was like, wow, he kind of was like at. At his time he was standing in this birth of this new cultural era, and he didn't really know back then that he was going to essentially achieve artistic sainthood. <laughs> and I just thought that was fascinating. So Wow. only well, just sorry, I didn't know that. See? I'm coming on podcasts and learning stuff. Ta-da! Like he's Van Gogh had the most fascinating life and he was living in the most fascinating and interesting time that reflects our own time in really interesting ways. So yeah, I, I love writing about him. He's so cool, and I love the novel I'm writing about him, and God knows if it'll ever get published, and if it does, is it just gonna suffer the same fate the prophet's wife suffered being buried in obscurity Probably but <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's perfect for a story about Van Gogh, I don't know. <laughs> So I, I named uh, the podcast in honor of those kind of thoughts I had about him because uh, I really want to talk to people who are kind of in his situation where they're doing great work and maybe revolutionary work that's going to change the culture, but perhaps they don't know it yet. Or perhaps they do and they're just as pissed off and frustrated as he was uh, and as I am <laughs> because of the obscurity, so.
1: Is he the one that cut off his ear?
2: He did, yeah.
1: What, or what if we just cut off our ear and die?
2: it's a third option. I mean, what if what if we just cut off our ear and die? I mean, that is the question <laughs> we can all ask ourselves. I suppose you can frame anything in that in that light. <laughs> what if we just cut off our ear and die? That might be the title for this episode. We'll see. <laughs> <I don't> no. <know. laughs>
1: I also picture, uh, isn't he on the bottle of absinthe, or is that someone else?
2: Um, he might be. Uh, he was very fond of absinthe, so it wouldn't surprise me if some absinthe company put him on the bottle. He loved a little absinthe. He was a cool dude. I Someday, somehow, this book is going to get out to the world, and people are going to be like, huh, Van Gogh was a lot more complex than I thought. And he was.
1: <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't wait to read it. Oh, thank you.
2: Yeah, someday, someday you will.
1: I'm. Very, I need. I'm really, really interested in the part. Whatever you're gonna do with the ear cutting off, right?
2: Yeah. Well, he was. He. Uh, he dealt with um, another another way. That I really feel, I just feel so many connections to Van Gogh. Vince is like my bud now, like he kind of lives in my head and and we just sort of go through life together. Another way that, that I feel a lot of sympathy and parallels with him is that he really struggled with self-harm throughout his entire life. So cutting off his ear, a lot of people think he did it because like some prostitute friend like wasn't in love with him. That was not true. He just had a lot of stuff pile up on him all at once and he couldn't deal with it anymore and he'd been trying to avoid self-harm for a really long time and he just couldn't anymore and he snapped and he grabbed a razor and just like did the first thing he thought would inflict pain on him which was to slice off his ear and immediately he was like oh i fucked up bad wow. See, you're continue you're continuing to teach me because again i didn't know this I, my my understanding of art
1: is probably at a third grade level that's why i'm sitting here asking you questions about van gogh being on absinthe bottles sort of skirting around it and I love how you know so much so in my mind I I have no idea why this man cut off his ear uh, except for I've always heard crazy or whatever and yet I'm telegraphing that because I'm a person with anxiety and and so when you when you explain it as oh this is actually a person an artist who just is going through some shit and just wanted to feel something I really relate to that so you know it's sort of like why don't we just cut off our ear and die um as a third option out there just that's sort of my gallows humor but um
2: but yeah how inspiring gallows humor so important um yeah have you always been a gallows humor type person yeah i'm pretty dry can i ask you a question have you ever worked in like a high stress environment where gallows humor was like just how everyone survived well i've worked in fast food and retail
1: so
2: oh jesus yeah
1: so yes (laughs) So I'm one of the rare breeds, too. I don't know. It's not a rare breed, but it's like that meme where for people who've worked in retail and fast food, which one's worse? And the meme says, well, one's jump scare horror, which is fast food, and retail is psychological horror. (laughs) That
2: is so true. That is so true. Um, I worked for uh, a few years in an emergency vet clinic, and I worked in triage admitting, so I would have to decide which, like, suffering animals would be seen first. It was so difficult, and the but I loved that job so much. The entire crew I worked with, we were all, it was just one, like, comedy crew like, like we would we would take everything really seriously and then we would just crack jokes all, and all night long it was the overnight shift so I worked from like 4pm to like 2am so just all night long us just you know helping injured and, and dying animals and then just laughing and laughing and laughing <laughs> Back. I appreciate this about you and
1: I think that's why we're we're getting along so well in this conversation because I I have one of those sickly dogs that always has to go to the emergency vet. Aww. And so I just appreciate. I appreciate Aww. the people that work there and that can handle it and compartmentalize my pain because when I take my dog into those places
2: it' bad for everyone. <laughs> it's it's hard. It's really hard to deal with. And like, I mean, of course, we always had major sympathy with everyone—the animals and the owners who were just going through so much. But then, the only way we could keep ourselves sane was to just go crack jokes when no one could see <laughs>
1: and no, but no judgment. I have the worst sense of humor
2: in the world. Uh, uh. <laughs> it was so fun. So. We did have we had one um 4th of July and I was like, "Oh god, it's the 4th of July. I know it's just horrible shit's going to happen left and right." We had so many cases come in, but every animal survived. And was fine, and it was like the funniest night too. That's a really good story. Yeah, because we we had a a female cat come in named Mister Poops. <laughs> she was she was fine, <laughs> she was okay. Somebody brought this tiny little dog in named Waffles, and he was like, we were like, what's going on with Waffles? And he said uh, he ate thirty two chicken wings, <laughs> and I was like, you know the exact number? He's like, yes. We took Waffles back for an x-ray. The x-ray came back, and it was just this shape of a tiny dog just stuffed with chicken wings. We're like, yeah, that's definitely 32 chicken wings. Waffles. Uh, Waffles was fine, too, though. We got all the chicken wings
1: out, so. So, this is a literary novel, what you're describing. It would be a great literary novel. It's called Fourth of July, and each chapter is from the point of view of one
2: from Waffles and... Oh my God. Yeah. Mr. Poops. Yeah. One Mr. Poops. Yeah. The whole crew. I actually, I've thought about writing a memoir of when I worked at the emergency vet clinic, but I also thought like it might be not that, popular and maybe not worth my time to write just because I think a lot of people would be upset by all the animal death in it, so maybe not. You'd also have to build a really unhinged platform around animal
1: death. I would just be like, Godspeed. Like selling it, but also kind of making it inspirational so that you can ultimately sell this book. Yeah. Yeah, that would be difficult. That might be beyond my abilities. That's why it would work as
2: a literary novel. I can see it winning awards. Yeah, well, nothing I do wins awards. Plenty of shortlisting, but no wins yet. (laughs) One day, one day, we will all win the awards we deserve. One day. Oh, I better. I've been working so hard for it, it's pissing me off. I don't even know why I want it so badly, I just do. (laughs) It's just like, my motivation. (laughs) Same. So didn't you, am I thinking, am I remembering this correctly? Did you uh, get an MFA or am I?
1: No, I I have a sad bastard degree. Oh, good. That's the best kind. Yeah. It's a, it's a master's in writing. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Hey, I, sorry, I, I shouldn't have announced it with my, it's cancer voice. But that's just how I did it. Um, so yeah, I got it from Johns Hopkins University. I mean, it's a, it, fairly impressive. I have a master's degree in writing from Johns Hopkins University. That's incredible. Wow, good for
2: you. <laughs> but in the literary world, that means very little. Yeah, but I mean, fuck the literary world, right? Like, we can make our own literary world, and you're doing it. You're, you're creating. God, You have half a million downloads on your lit magazine? Jesus Christ. Like, that's baller, dude.
1: I guess it's a lot. Again, I'm not sure. I have nothing to compare it to. I don't know who reads literary magazines. I would love for everyone to start sharing their numbers.
2: Well, I can share some numbers with you. So my best-selling novel, One for the Blackbird, One for the Crow, has sold about 400,000 copies to date. So you are outperforming a, a, a strong bestseller book. Like this book was one of the top 100 best-selling books of 2020. So, so you're doing better than me in terms of audience reach. That, that's awesome. But I think there's more to Taco Bell Quarterly than maybe you suspected there was. Like, I mean, I think people really are responding to it and love it. And you built that with your own two hands, and that's pretty fucking cool. Yeah, I guess. I guess so. I, 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 I don't. I don't get
1: too focused on. Um... Sort of all my, the personal audience reaching all that. Maybe I should, uh, but yeah. That's what it takes, though. Yeah, well, the literary writers built it, too. The people that have submitted, the hundreds of writers, including yourself... The ones who I've rejected, everyone has sort of, everyone has built it. I, I'm just writing an unhinged um, character on uh, social media to drive it, to drive it, which I, I, I think is an important thing to share is I, people will see this as a popular thing and they'll roll their eyes and think, how did that get popular? Well it did
2: just start as a nobody person just making a joke online. That's the way the best stuff starts though, I think. Like like that's genuine. I don't I don't think you can force that kind of of uh public appeal. I think it, it has to come naturally and it has to come out of something that's a just a genuine like, whatever, you know? <laughs> like, I'm just gonna throw this idea out there. I think when you try to manufacture uh, popularity like that, it, I think people can kind of sense it and they don't respond as emotionally to it.
1: Yeah. Well, and there's something about that that's very true to creative writing too, is that we're always trying to figure out how do you, how do you write a good story? And it's just, we're constantly thinking about the craft of writing and there is, when you think about it so much, that's how literary writing has become sort of this very manufactured looking thing um because we're sort of teaching this
2: paint by numbers approach and yeah and i i really think um it, it has become so ingrained in the establishment like that mfa kind of voice and i don't mean sincerely i do not mean to diss anybody out there listening who has an mfa i know you worked your fucking ass off for that and like wept and bled and suffered to get that goddamn degree and i respect that like hugely i do
1: yeah and no, well no diss either i'm in fact i'm deeply
2: jealous <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure I'd have my Pulitzer by now if I'd gotten an MFA. <laughs> I really also respect that world. I do. I
1: you know I, I think it's really cool when people go to study art and just really believe it and throw, throw yourself into it. I kind of hate myself that I've always been so much of a skeptic. Um, so it, it, everyone is an outsider. Part of their outsiderness is also just them. I, I'm a little bit jealous that I, I, I feel like I can't be an insider because I'll never have one of the cool degrees So I I don't want to diss anyone. I think that's awesome when people put themselves out there and do that.
2: Yeah, for sure. But I also like the other side of that coin is I do think that um, kind of trained MFA voice has become so prevalent in literary fiction that anything that does not have that voice um, isn't even recognized as like belonging within that canon. So like I technically didn't even graduate from high school, let alone go to college, and the way I write is not like the way an MFA writes, and um, and I think that's a good thing i like that that um variety you know like i really love seeking out and reading authors who don't sound like they were trained and polished that's my fave in in terms you know as a reader and so that's how i write as well and um and it definitely like works against me when when pursuing my goals but like also what the fuck else am i supposed to do I'm not an MFA. I don't have that, that training. So I can't like, you know, if I, if I wanted to read enough people who are MFAs, I could probably replicate the voice convincingly. I'm a pretty good chameleon in that regard, but also like, I don't want to. I'm proud of my literary voice. I'm proud of the fact that I built it genuinely from my own experience. And, um, and if other people don't like that, then they can go fuck themselves (laughs) to be perfectly
1: frank. I love the eloquence. <laughs>
2: Thank you. I am a remarkably eloquent person.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I think we, I, something you said too, also, you know, and they don't la- They don't allow outsiders to shape the voice, and, and that's kind of what my whole thing
2: is, is let, let's let an outsider shape it, put a Taco Bell in it. I love that. And the deep irony is when you are a future saint in a new era, like old Van Gogh back there, you end up shaping the voice anyway. For somebody like me who's super, super nerdy about art and like grew up immersed in visual art, and like from a time I was a child, my parents were like teaching me about art, right? Which is such a benefit for a person in a creative field, I'm super grateful for that. For all the ways my parents fucked me up, and they did. <laughs> At least I got this incredible like hands-on art education. But the thing is that the outsiders are always eventually the ones who end up influencing the inside in one way or another. It's almost like art wants to be its own entity and you can't stop it. You can try to gatekeep it, you can try to control it, you can try to put these parameters on it, but it will find a way to come barging in, and it will do what it has been sent to this earth to do, whatever that is, you know? Cause like now, you can trace this lineage in, in all contemporary art in, in the West, it is all influenced by Van Gogh's work, like in, in very direct and intense and clear ways, if you are an art dork and if you can see these things in them. So I think uh, even even those of us who are still outsiders or like me on a parallel path and feeling some dissatisfaction with where they are, I think in the end we're going to get there because it's always, it's always those outsider voices that end up becoming uh, the ones that everybody wants to listen to in the end.
1: Yeah, and something you just said reminded me what I was talking about in the back channel the other day with the co-editor they said art is feral you can't try to tame it boy yeah that, that was just some, we were just talking about some criticism that we had seen and you just you can't tame it that's
2: a beautiful thought we should probably end there shouldn't we <laughs> why not <laughs>
0: in my drum and the board i would break a millionaire oh they feed on chicken pie if you hear we die if you cannot cut it with a sword oh they ought to take it hang around for that work to be found in that all Said one night I had need a gun to knife something in there. done before? Oh, the fleas held me down while the teach is scrambling around. in that awful hungry? Hang some I'm Oh, the beefsteak it was rare, and the butter had red hair. Baby had his feet both in the soup Oh, the eggs they were not plants. If you take one, you would hang. And an awful hungry. Hey, come what i in
2: Funniest story that involves fast food, uh, oh, I have one. I have one. You'll like it. This was, uh, I guess it would have been around April or May of 2002. I was 22 years old. And as so many people do in their early 20s, I was working in a fast food restaurant. Subject
0: value Express combos at the Rack's drive-through. These tasty delights are priced in low, even-dollar amounts, so there's no change. That's just grand, because Mr. Delicious just had some rather delicate surgery. If there's no change, he doesn't have to squirm so much to put it back in his pocket, now does he? He just grabs his combo and drives ever so slowly over the speed bump, tickety D. This
2: was Dick's Drive-In in Seattle, the famous Dick's. Still the best burger you can get in Seattle. Deluxe, add onions and ketchup, perfection. I don't care what anyone else says, In-N-Out can go fly a kite, Dick's is the greatest. Not so great to work there, as it turned out. Well, okay, let me be fair to the whole Dick's ethos. It is actually a really great company to work for, like they're very ethical. I mean, aside from all the factory farm beef that's involved, they're ethical to humans. This company voluntarily paid a living wage, and still does, not because any law compelled them, but because it was the right thing to do. So back when I worked there, you started a little above minimum wage, and if you stuck it out for a year, your wage would jump up to $15 an hour, which in 2002 money was like roughly the equivalent of $24 now. So they paid well, and if you were there for more than a year, the company would also contribute $10,000 a year to college tuition. I don't know if they're still doing the college tuition thing. I hope they are because it's great. The company was lovely and took really good care of their employees, obviously, but I am just not cut out for fast food. That's a hard job. It's so hard. I get enraged whenever people use flipping burgers as like an insult because I guarantee you anyone who looks down on fast food workers does not have the fortitude or the endurance to work in that environment themselves. It's hard work, it's physically demanding, and it's draining, like emotionally draining, and it's dangerous. And I have never had any other job where customers were so consistently awful to me, as in fast food. Nowadays, you know, like at this age, I think I wouldn't take shitty customers so personally. I think it would kind of roll off me, I would definitely laugh at them behind their backs with my coworkers. Maybe I would laugh in their faces at this age, who knows? But when I was young, uh, I was a much more sensitive person, even than I am now. I'm still really sensitive, but this was, like, cranked up to 11 in, in the days of my youth. I mean, there were so many, so many awful customers who were just garbage human beings who obviously looked forward all day to being able to mistreat someone as, you know, I guess like as an outlet for their feelings about the ways they were also mistreated by this world. That's my generous interpretation as a middle-aged woman who has gained the smallest modicum of wisdom and perspective as she rockets towards menopause. The reality is probably just like all those people are colossal pieces of shit who think it's their god-given right to use fast food workers as their personal punching bags. I don't know. There was one especially memorable encounter with a customer that was so bizarre that every single detail of this interaction has stuck with me for two entire decades. So along with the obvious milkshakes, Dix also sells ice cream cones and you can get hot fudge on top of a cone if you want it. And I had this woman, I don't know if she was drunk or what, but she really wanted me to sell her a cone filled with hot fudge. No ice cream, just hot fudge inside a cone. Like, I was perfectly willing to fulfill this unusual request, but Dix had just recently switched from, like, the old-fashioned cash tills to uh, a computerized system, and then everything we sold had to be entered into the computer. And there just was no option for hot fudge in a cone, and I kept trying to explain that fact to this woman. She kept getting more and more pissed off. I told her I could charge her for an ice cream cone and then just give her a cone filled with fudge, but she didn't want that. She thought she shouldn't have to pay the full price of an ice cream cone if she wasn't getting Any ice cream. So we were at an impasse. And she just kept escalating, and I was staying calm and like giving her the one option that would work, and she would not accept it until finally she was throwing a full on tantrum in my line like toddler style, stomping her feet, bald fists, red face, screaming, and I will never forget this. She kept shrieking over and over at the top of her voice Give me my fucking fudge! She was at least in her early 30s. As if the fudge tantrum wasn't enough, this random guy who wasn't even standing in line to order, just like walking by on Broadway, he comes over to find out what's going on because a woman is screaming, and he decides to white knight for this person without knowing any of the context. So random man starts berating me for not providing good customer service, and this dude just lays into me because... Everyone thinks it's their right to treat fast food workers like shit, don't they? And this rando, this stuffed shirt tie rack motherfucker is telling me what a terrible person I am and how I ought to be ashamed because I'm not even doing the job I'm being paid to do. To the credit of the rest of the people waiting in my line, who have now witnessed the whole fudge riot since its inception, they did, like, try to step in and tell this guy to mind his own business and take off, but he wouldn't listen, even to them, and just started getting heated with them, too, and pretty soon, like, everyone is yelling at each other in my line, and I was just standing there behind the order window going, holy shit, are these people going to start brawling over a hot fudge in a cone? The guy who was working the grill came over and sort of like leaned out my order window and he just yelled, Hey, fuck off! And just like that, it was over. Fudge lady and her white knight just left at that point. I breathed a sigh of relief. Everyone who waited so patiently in my line was very nice as I took their orders and I thought that would be the last I heard about it. Well, like, an hour later, the white knight came back, and he got in my line. And I was like, oh, for God's sake, what does this asshole want now? When he got up to my window, he actually apologized to me. Not because he'd been a jerk to a fast food worker, but because he'd later witnessed Fudge Lady, like, elsewhere on Broadway, randomly assault someone on the street. Like, out of nowhere, so this guy said, she ran up and punched a woman in the face. And he said, so I just wanted to apologize to you because she's obviously unhinged. Yeah. Obviously, dude, she was screaming, give me my fucking fudge at me over and over again. That's not something anyone does if they aren't unhinged. So I don't even remember what I told this guy, but I remember riding the bus home that afternoon when my shift was over and just thinking, there's no way I can stick it out a whole year at Dick's. More money would have been nice, obviously, and I really wanted the tuition money so I could actually go to college. But the thought of working there for all the years of college just weighed me down. I felt like I was suffocating under this awful mass of despair, and the mass of despair smelled like frying oil and burgers, and I just knew I would not be able to bear up. Here's the thing that I didn't appreciate about my situation at the time, though. Dick's actually did value me a lot. And I was too young to realize that I would have had a lot of power in that situation that I could have used to my advantage. Like, I could have gotten onto the grill or something like really fast if I'd leveraged the power I didn't even realize I had. And then I probably could have stuck it out all through college. Like, if I didn't have to deal with screaming fudge maniacs all day long and I could just grill burgers, yeah, I probably could have. But um, this is why I had the power that I didn't even appreciate at the time. I worked the opening shift. Always, without fail. And I was on the opening shift because I was the only person my manager could find who would get up early enough to make the tartar sauce before the restaurant opened. Dick's Drive-In cannot function without its tartar sauce. People are obsessed with this shit. They slather it on every Dick's burger, even the Deluxe, which already has tartar sauce on it. They dip their fries in it. You do not go to Seattle without getting a burger at Dick's. And you do not eat at Dick's without involving tartar sauce in some way. So because this tartar sauce was such an intrinsic part of the Dick's brand, we had to ensure that there was plenty of it on hand before the restaurant opened each morning. So my job was to come in and open the restaurant and I'd you know get everything ready for the cooks, I'd do another clean, we were like really huge on cleanliness there, but my manager always stressed that the most critical task I could possibly perform each and every morning was making enough tartar sauce to get us through the whole day. All right, here's the secret to the famous tartar sauce of Dick's Drive-In. Are you ready? Brace yourselves. Five-gallon bucket of mayonnaise, two hundred 128-ounce cans of dill pickle relish. That's it. That's all it is. It's mayo mixed with relish, you guys. So every morning at 7.30 a.m., After riding a bus for over an hour to get into the city, I would open up a fresh five-gallon bucket of industrial mayonnaise and I would use this like long-handled little tin pan. I vividly remember this thing. And I would scoop out half the fresh mayo into one of the tartar sauce bins and half into the other and then I would open the two cans of relish and dump them into the bins and then I had to mix it all together. Technically, there was this big paddle-like thing I was using to mix, but really, it didn't work that well, so I just used my arms. I mean, with really long plastic gloves on, of course. But every single morning, before I'd even had my breakfast, I was up to my armpits in five gallons of tartar sauce. Oh, and some mornings it was 10 gallons because on the last two days of my shift, I would make double batches of tartar sauce because, you know, again, nobody else would get up early enough to do this job and God forbid if Dick's Drive-In runs out of tartar sauce. You think the fudge meltdown was bad? If customers couldn't get tartar sauce at Dick's, it would be like the January 6th insurrection. Just mayhem. So anyway, the funny part, believe it or not, is not the fudge riot or the fact that I started my day with both arms plunged into vats of tartar sauce. The funny part is how I quit my job at Dick's. I'd had a really bad week. Uh, I'd had a really bad life, you know? It's so fucking hard to be that age. It's hard to be new at adulthood and constantly broke and to have... No stability at all, just totally unmoored, trying to flounder your way through life like you've got it together and you have nothing together. Everything around you, everything about you is in constant disarray and you feel like it's definitely never going to get any better, ever. Like the template for the whole rest of your life is set now because you're an adult and this is the best you have to look forward to. Anyway, I was living with a roommate, Jake, who um, I had been good friends with him in high school, but he got really religious immediately after high school maybe it was understandable because he actually was really sick when he was i think 18 um he was in the hospital for a while and i wonder if that experience kind of changed him you know because we had been great friends for many years and he'd always been christian but not the weird kind of christian but in our early 20s he became the weird kind like the awful judgy mean-spirited kind and I didn't know how bad he really was with this stuff until we were living together. And then we had a lease and I was like, great, I'll just stick with this bullshit until our lease is up and then we can both go our separate ways and that'll be that. Jake apparently had a huge problem with the fact that I was an unmarried woman who was enjoying a perfectly normal, healthy sex life. Because he had such strong feelings about his religion, I never brought anyone I was seeing over to our place. Just, I didn't want to make him uncomfortable, you know? It was his home too. And if he didn't want to be confronted by my casual sex, I thought, well, that's fair enough. So I just, you know, I just never brought anyone home. I would go stay at the guy's place, but I kept my life as my own business, and I thought that would have been reasonable enough to keep any roommate happy. But no! Jake was so offended by my harlotry that he told one of our mutual friends that he was planning to move out without telling me and, like, stick me with the full cost of our rent. Like, Jake's big plan was to wait till I was at work, and then load all his shit up in his car and just ghost me. What a fucking coward. But our mutual friend, for obvious reasons, thought I deserved to get a heads up so I could plan to find another roommate and wouldn't be even more financially ruined than I already was just by dint of the fact that I was 22 years old. And I got her text about this while I was on the bus that morning. And, you know, I thanked her for letting me know what Jake was planning, and I debated whether I should call Jake and, like, bitch him out and tell him I knew about his very Christianly plot to skip out on his obligations and lie to me, you know, like Jesus would do. And then I thought, oh God, now I really am stuck at dicks forever. I think I felt like there was no way I'd be able to find another roommate, which isn't true. Like, I could have found someone, but in the crisis of the moment, I was like, I have to do this all on my own. I have to be able to afford this rent on my own. There's nothing else for it. And that meant sticking it out at Dick's indefinitely, because how else could I find a job that would eventually pay me enough to live on? I was so upset all through that work day and just trying not to show it, you know, trying to just hold it all together. I made the goddamn tartar sauce. I did everything I was supposed to do. It was miserable. People were yelling at me. I felt helpless. Like, really, that's what it came down to. I felt powerless in my own life. And I was sick of feeling that way. I felt powerless all along from my earliest memories, you know, just powerless and hopeless. And I was sick of it. I was sick of doing things because I had to. I wanted to live the kind of life where I did things because I chose to do them, not because I had no choice but to do them. You see what I mean? And right at the end of my shift, even though I had this enormous weight of the full rent and the education I still thought I could obtain and the dream of becoming a writer, which seemed impossible then. Impossible. Because I had no time. I had to work so hard all the time. But even though all those problems were still there, for some reason, I allowed this one wild moment of the purest most spontaneous impulsivity to seize me and carry me away i threw myself into the chaos for once instead of trying to hide from it or force it into some thin veneer of order i embraced chaos i had my coat and my backpack and everything i was just walking out the back door of the restaurant and i obeyed the instinct i turned on my heel with no no planning no thought about this i just did it in the moment and i yelled hey I QUIT! Oh god, pandemonium. The manager freaked out. The look on his face, I can still see it. I know he was thinking, Who's gonna make the tartar sauce? He kinda like yelled for me to wait, but I was not going to wait. I took off running up Broadway. And I hadn't gone like half a block when I noticed that people were noticing me and kind of laughing. And I glanced back over my shoulder and my manager was running after me, like yelling for me to come back because no one else would make the tartar sauce. I should have, I should have gone back. If I'd have been wiser, I would have used the tartar sauce as a point of negotiation and I would have probably built a stable life for myself much sooner than I actually did. But I was only 22, you know? I hadn't yet learned to see myself as a powerful person. He chased me for like three or four blocks, pretty much the whole length of Broadway, or I mean where all the shops are on Broadway, you know? But he never caught me. I was a fast runner back then and uh, I had a lot of motivation to keep going because now that I had removed the job I hated from the picture right at the moment when I most needed a job, the only possibility that remained to me was to find a better job and fast. And I did, I did. That's a story for another time though. In that moment, while I was booking it up Broadway with my manager chasing me in his greasy apron with his little paper cap blowing off his head, I didn't know if I was ever going to find another job again. All I knew is that somebody else was gonna have to step the fuck up now and make that tartar sauce. Cause I wasn't doing it anymore. That's all I got for you today. Thanks for listening, and please remember to give me a follow on your favorite podcast app. And if you do use Apple Podcasts, please rate and review as that helps juice the algorithm so I can find more curious weirdos like you you definitely want to follow Taco Bell Quarterly, which you can do at tacobellquarterly.org. Support the magazine by snagging some of their awesome merch, find their social media links on the site, and of course, support M.M. Carrigan directly by giving them a follow on Twitter, if Twitter still exists, at M.M. Kerrigan. If you want more stuff from the inside of my head, please go read The Prophet's Wife and then tell everyone you know to also read it. It's the best thing I've ever made and I want it to find the people who will appreciate it. Sound collage components come from the following YouTube channels. Old Commercials, Kino Library, Winnock Robles, Carlisle Media, Old Time TV, Mr. Delicious Archive, and I also forgot to acknowledge the channel Scream Factory TV in the last episode, sorry about that. The musical interlude was Hungry Hash House by Charlie Poole in the public domain. Additional music includes At Peace by Thomas Smith and Night Drive by Shane Ivers. Outro music is Running the Mardi Gras by Boko, used with permission of Big Crown Records. For more info about this podcast, including socials and ways to contact me, visit futuresaintpod.com. I'm your host Libby Grant, and until next time, do good magic, and make good worlds.